Well, uh, it's it's fantastic to be here. Those of you on screen, if you've not been here, then uh, there's about a thousand rows uh, stadium here. Uh, and so, hello, Labrie! Um, I want to start by telling you a story. I studied on uh, in Vancouver many years ago, um, and a very good friend of mine there and I both went on holiday at the same time, different holidays. Uh, in fact, mine wasn't a holiday, it was a course from Regent College. Uh, uh, which involved sailing around the Gulf Islands. And I had this blissful week. Meanwhile, this friend of mine was doing the West Coast Trail, during which he got plucked off the West Coast Trail by a rogue wave. And by, uh, by a sheer miracle, he ended up, him and his companions, knocking around amidst all those logs and dumped in the right end of the canyon, not out at sea, and, um, and lived to tell the tale. It was a dramatic uh, story. And, and of course, our experiences of the east side and the west side of the island, the, the still waters and the chaotic waters of Vancouver Island were really quite profound. And his comment, I can't say it in full because it's so close to the beginning of my talk, I can't swear. There's this big guy from Chicago. And, you know, I got back feeling this glow and he said, you know, Jess, nature doesn't give up about you. And, and of course, he was absolutely right. I don't know if you've ever had an experience of water that makes you feel like it's absolutely merciless. It doesn't care about you. Um, you, you might have seen it in films. You, if you've seen Perfect Storm or Master and Commander, some of these films, they really try and get under the feel uh, of, of a storm at sea. Uh, it's, it's a hugely strong and powerful and emotive thing. Uh, personally, I've, uh, I've I suppose I've, been, I've had a couple of brushes with that kind of thing actually more because I love playing in waves, but there's definitely been a few times when I, uh, in certain parts of the world where the waves get really big, I've found myself unable to deal with what's coming at me. I've, I've been dragged along the bottom underneath the wave, not expecting actually to come back out of it. And I'm thinking, why did I bother body surfing today? But anyway, I'm sure that uh, you might relate to something of the feeling of, the, of, uh, of being uh, at the mercy of storms and floods and so on. Commodore George Anson uh, uh, wrote uh, in his book, A Voyage Around the World, he wrote this, and uh, my British accent's really kind of come to the fore at this point. <laughs> it says, we perceived that notwithstanding, they say, a bit of context, he is a Commodore of a ship that's going around the world and it's caught in an almighty, one of those extraordinary storms people are desperately hanging on to the rigging things are falling off left right and center um it's uh, <laughs> um it's a somewhat chaotic moment and everyone's terrified uh, and one of the sailors gets plucked off the boat by a wave and we perceived that notwithstanding the prodigious agitation of the waves, he swam very strong. And it was with the utmost concern that we found ourselves incapable of assisting him. Indeed, we were more grieved at his unhappy fate as we lost sight of him struggling in the waves uh, and concluded uh, from the manner in which he swam that he might continue sensible for a considerable time longer of the horror attending his irretrievable situation. Uh, the poet William Cowper or Cooper uh, felt uh, he he felt an enormously strong resonance with this particular story, as he battled with depression. This is a this is a, a man who had written 
the hymn from which we get God Moves in Mysterious Ways. He'd written the hymn uh, about God's victory over the terrors of the sea. And it said this, uh, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the seas and rides upon the storm. But as he enters into depression, and as he hears the story of, of George Anson's sailor, um, he writes The Castaway, which is one of his last poems. And the final few stanzas go like this. No voice divine the storm allayed, no light propitious shone, when snatched from all effectual aid, we perished each alone. But I, beneath a rougher sea, am whelmed in deeper gulfs than he. He saw this resonance between those kinds of experiences of the water and his own experience with struggling with mental health. Um, and, uh, and interestingly, that's a resonance that the writers of the scriptures also experienced. Let me read you a few passages. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swelled around me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, the seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down, the earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. That's Jonah. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink beneath the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters. The, the floods engulf me. I am worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. That's Psalm 69. One more. God is our refuge and our strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. Psalm 46. When the writers of the scriptures are battling with their own mental health, uh, their go-to imagery is watery chaos, floodwaters, and so on. It reflects uh, that sense of sinking in something threatening but somewhat undefined. My experience of stress and anxiety is that thing of losing focus on what it is that you're actually anxious about. That's part of the condition. And of course, that resonates with the amorphous forms that appear around you. That sense of no foothold, the sense of just sinking and sinking and sinking, there's nothing gonna stop you. Um, the sense of the absence of God within that. Um, how could God let this happen? Why has he turned his face away? Or worse, why has he turned his face towards me in anger? Why is God angry at me? This, this feels like it's God doing this to me. I've felt all of those feelings in my own experiences uh, of stress and anxiety. In, in the world of the ancient Near East, the world of the biblical writers, uh, there's added weight, added resonance to some of this because of their understanding of how the world works. Um, and firstly, there's the sense of mythology. Uh, so firstly, in terms of the folks understanding of uh, mythology, um, 
in the ancient Near East, there's a number of cultures that have this sense of mythology in which there's a storm god that defeats uh, a dragon-like sea god. This is, uh, this is really uh, putting some very deep uh, mythology into some very simple language. Um, and by defeating that god, they become the sort of king of the pantheon of gods. Let me read you a tiny bit of Enuma Elish, which comes out of Babylon. Then the Lord, this is, we talk about Marduk. Um, then the Lord raised up the flood storm, his mighty weapon. He mounted the, the storm chariot, irresistible and terrifying. He harnessed and yoked it to the team of four, the killer, the relentless, the trampler, the swift. Sharp were their teeth bearing, their, their poison bearing teeth. Uh, they were versed in ravage, skilled in destruction. And then it finishes that section. And Marduk split Tiamat like a shellfish. Um, Tiamat uh, is, the, um, is the Babylonian sea god who was represented by a dragon. Uh, the, 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 uh, Babylon, the Babylonian Empire is the, the end of the Old Testament. Uh, so that's the exilic and post-exilic, basically. Um, before then, obviously, uh, most people who have read their Old Testament will know about Baal or Baal. He's a storm god. Uh, his, same thing had to, happens to him. He, he has a victory over Yam, the sea god, and is, is crowned king of all the gods. Um, I suspect, and I'm no classicist, but I suspect that you could do something vaguely similar with Zeus and Jupiter for the Greeks and the Romans. There's a certain lineage here, although the, the, the story gets less and less uh, uh, tight to that idea. Um, uh, but it, but in all of them, there's this sense of uh, of us uh, of the sea being the domain of of a, of a evil dragon uh, that is uh, in writhing in its last hours in its final throes. Now um, you don't have to believe that cognitively. You don't have to think that it's there. You don't have to believe in Tiamat and uh, Marduk for your imagination to run wild. You only have to if you if you approach Loch Ness uh, at three in the morning and you've been telling stories about the Loch Ness monster uh, and it's dark and oily there and the, and the atmosphere is right, you will feel a little frisson jumping into the water. You know there's no Nessie in there, and so but that's the way the imagination works. The Bible engages with these ideas, not necessarily affirming their truth, but affirming them as present within the imaginative landscape of, 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 uh, of their people uh, as they are influenced by the cultures around them. So in the world of the Hebrews, or the world of the Old Testament, Yahweh is very much presented this way. Uh, and you have Rahab and Leviathan and others, uh, these who very much function like this dragon uh, sea god. Um, and and in many ways, Jesus uh, functions the same way. We'll come on to that a little bit as we go along. And Satan again, um, the very fact that Satan appears as a serpent in the way they understood. Um, am I going to do I want to say what's the word? I don't see etymology. Do I mean etymology? Mm -hmm. So serpents and fish were, were, were thought to be related um, and dragons and that they would be part of that. So one of the reasons we see Satan as a serpent is connected to this kind of mythological backdrop. Um, in terms of their cosmology as well, we're not going to go into any detail on this, but in terms of how they understood the world to be built, uh, the sea, as you go deeper into the sea, you go further and further from God. God uh, lives above the dome of the sky. If you're up the mountains, you're closer to God. 
Uh, if you're in the seas, you're further and further away from his loving, creative presence. Again, I'm not saying, well, I think the Bible does imagine the world that way, but it doesn't tell us that that's necessarily how the world is built. Anyway, that's a whole rabbit warren, which we can get into afterwards, if you like. But the whole way in which the people of, especially of the Old Testament, thought uh, about the world, their mythological and cosmological influences from their neighbours, put a huge extra uh, sinister edge to their experience of water. And it feels to me as if this kind of imagery gives us a whole bunch of ways for us to reflect on our own experiences of stress, anxiety, depression in biblically faithful ways. Um, and I think that we see that uh, in a number of ways. There are a few different things that we're gonna to attempt to do in that regard. The biblical imagery of watery chaos, I think helps us as we reflect on it in a number of ways. Uh, in the first place, it helps us to find a sense of belonging within the community of faith and its scriptures amid all the struggles that we might experience. We'll talk a bit about that in a minute. I think that reflecting on this gives us hope that there is a way out of those experiences, that we believe in a God who is victorious over them, ultimately. Um, and finally, uh, we, have, uh, uh, we find a huge amount of wisdom um, for how to cope with uh, those experiences and how to try and ensure they, they don't happen. So we're going to go through uh, those three uh, headings uh, now for a little bit. And I should say bef before we get into the meat of it, um, that I am no psychotherapist. That's not my training. Um, and I'm not suggesting that anything I'm, I'm doing tonight uh, can replace uh, counselling uh, or, uh, or <clears throat> medication or anything like that. If, if, if you're at that stage uh, with your mental, mental health battle, um, then please keep going with that. I wouldn't want for a second to be trying to replace that. I think we're talking about something a little lighter than, than some of those experiences. I hope that anybody, whatever your depth of experience in terms of mental health, will find this useful. Um, but it's it's not sufficient if, you, if these struggles are substantial. Um, and if those struggles are substantial, you might just find a few of, the, of what, some of what happens here, a tiny bit trite. Uh, but hold me to, accountable to that as, as, we, um, as we discuss afterwards. I, I should also just make clear that, of course, the Bible writers had no frame of reference for ideas uh, for concept, the medical concepts of anxiety and depression and so on. And of course, they lived in a world where lifestyles didn't, it didn't create the pandemic of mental health that we have in this world today. Um, so we've got to be cautious about how we transfer these ideas across. But I, I speak this evening simply as somebody who has had my own battles with mental health, generally in terms of stress and anxiety, um, and have many friends who have also been through those kinds of things. Um, and somebody who, in my own academic theological studies, has stumbled upon this imagery, which seems to me both profoundly helpful and bizarrely unexplored um, but my my intention with what what happens now is to just give you some avenues of exploration and reflection there's not going to be anything like the time that we would like to dig into all of this um, 
and I should also say that I'm I'm in the process of turning this material into a sort of five week course uh, for uh, if anyone would be interested in that, then do get in touch. That would be a, a way to go a little bit deeper with some of this material. But let's start uh, with the idea of belonging. Um, here are some things I think that come out of uh, reflecting on this material uh, for uh, in terms of belonging. You are not <clears throat> alone if you experience this stuff. If you go to church with mental health battles, very often you'll feel, feel alienated. Uh, there's such a pressure to feel as if the gospel solved everything in your life. Um, uh, and I think that there's many who uh, hide uh, behind the positiveness of the service, the, the, uh, the dare I say, this is uh, opening a can of worms, but the, the emotional anemic quality of much soft rock worship there's a whole uh, conversation to be had there, but it's very easy to feel alienated in the midst of these kinds of struggles in church. And I want to say to you that you are not alone um, because on one level, surely it shouldn't feel this way, but on another level it does. And even many of the Bible writers experienced life this way. And those who assembled the Psalms, for example, saw those experiences as central enough to our Christian lives that they wanted to include them in their hymn book. Um, life shouldn't feel this way, but it does. Um, and I'd also uh, say uh, that we understand our belonging simply in the fact that we fit into a narrative within the Bible's story. Um, the, the story of watery chaos, as, I'm, as I like to talk about it, goes really from the beginning to the end of uh, the Bible. Um, I can I invite uh, those in the room to, to, to see if they can think of some of the places it appears. Where, where is water? Where does water feature heavily uh, in the Bible? Has anyone got any ideas? Psalm 107. Great. Yeah, absolutely. Psalm 107. Yeah. Beginning before creation. Creation. Yep. Yeah. Genesis 1 and 2. Um, very, water is very important. Good. The flood. Exactly. Yes, absolutely. Any more? Sea of Galilee. That, well, the Sea of Galilee, yes, that, that's an that's important part of the New Testament story. Revelation. Revelation, there's the, the glassy sea, and then there's no longer any sea. We'll come to that. Yeah. Baptism. Baptism, yes. Every reference of baptism. Um, sorry. Yeah. Moses and uh, crossing. Absolutely. Yeah. The Exodus story, very important. Hmm. Was there somebody else? Hmm. Jonah, yep, we've mentioned Jonah as well. Job. Job, yep. Leviathan. Uh-huh, Leviathan. Um, we've got, um, uh, alongside the crossing of the Red Sea, we've got the entering into the promised land and the 12 smooth stones. Uh, Paul's shipwreck, exactly. Yes, very important. Any more? Think about the life of Jesus. Jesus giving a glass of water. Interesting. Yeah, the, Jesus talking about glasses of water. So we'll we'll wait till the very end to talk about positive oh, water. The water pots too. Yeah, the water into wine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but other uh, what what are the more threatening uses of water or experiences of water in the life of Jesus? Calming the storm. Yeah, the very similar story also to that is. Yeah, exactly. Peter walking uh, or trying to walk on the water. Yeah. Any others anyone can think of? You got most of them. Done, done very well. 
I mean, you're, there's 2,000 people here, so they should do well. Um, here, here are some others. Um, the wise man built his house upon the rock, and the rain came down, the floods came up. I only know the song. I can't remember the actual original words, but the house on the rock stood firm. It, those who hear my words and put them into practice, Jesus said, are like a man who built a house on a rock. And when the flood comes, the house withstands it. Um, in, uh, in the epistles, uh, Ephesians 4, uh, then we'll, uh, this talking about our Christian maturity, then we'll no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching. James 1, uh, one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind, uh, which is uh, a, a verse that needs careful understanding. Uh, Jude 13, the ungodly are wild waves of the sea foaming up their shame. Mm. So uh, you can see that the, the, the Bible is a waterlogged book, isn't it? Um, so the creation starts out of the watery chaos. And in the ancient Near East, that was all, that's the very definition of death is chaos. And God uh, creates order. He, 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 um, he, he cages the chaos, one might say. Um, and we'll talk a little bit towards the end about the creation story here. Um, and of course, you've got the flood where the chaos creeps back in. God allows it back in and God sends it back out again. Uh, you've got the Exodus story uh, in which God takes this ragtag bunch of slaves and he recreates them, takes them through the waters once again of, uh, and, and creates a new people. And he cleanses them. Uh, this is where baptism comes from, uh, basically, uh, in terms of the, the imagery of crossing through the Red Sea. Um, uh, they are cleansed of, of, the, of that which is oppressing them, the uh, Egyptian army. Um, and, and actually what you find in the Bible is that the Exodus story is the Baal defeating Yam and Marduk defeating, defeating Tiamat. It is, the, it is the moment in which the psalmists look back and say, God, you are king of the whole world. You have, you have defeated these powers. The waters fled, uh, God. But where are you now? So you are, then you have the whole... Uh, psalms um, reflecting on our experience of watery chaos despite the fact that we follow a god who has defeated them um, and at the, to, to cut a very long story short at the very end of the story what we discover is they are indeed defeated there's two images i mean obviously in revelation there's the dragon and the beast all that kind of stuff is linked into this mytho these mythological ideas but you have the glassy sea uh, where we cast down our crowns uh, that sense of the sea being clear of the dragon the drag there's nothing disturbing the water any longer um, and then ultimately there will the, the new heavens and the new earth there will not be any sea I haven't I don't know about you but when I first read that I thought no beach holidays <laughs> but of course what it's saying is that that the watery chaos this threatening uh, and a place where God is not is no more so from the start to the end of the story of the scriptures we have uh, watery chaos and our experience of it therefore places us into the whole narrative of scripture
So that's uh, section one, belonging. I want to talk about hope uh, for a little bit. Um, I would say uh, there are three uh, important ideas as we think about hope within this imagery. We think about God's power over the chaos. We think about God defeating evil. And we think about our own trajectory towards shalom. Shalom meaning the peace and wholeness of life as it was always supposed to be, um, which is what we long for in our hearts today. But that is what is promised for us ultimately in the new heaven and the new earth. Um, Because in a lot of these stories, as I already intimated with Exodus, what we see is a God who has power over the chaos. In that creation story, uh, when, when God splits the water between the sky and the sea, it's this first act uh, uh, on I think it's day two, as he starts to deal with the actual material work of creation. Uh, that very strongly evokes Marduk splitting Tiamat like a shellfish. Do you remember you heard that from Enuma release? And the same thing happens when uh, when Yahweh parts the waters of the Red Sea. Uh, he's doing the same thing. He's that they are evoking this the Babylonian in that sense mythology um, in in their recounting of the story. God, powerful over these dragons. Uh, the flood story, which is, oh my goodness, uh, if there was one story I wish wasn't in the Bible when I'm talking to my friends who don't don't know Jesus, it's probably the flood story. Um, but actually, if you read it alongside some of the other flood accounts, of which there are numerous, um, then what you, you get a sense of the, 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 the Hebrew God of the Hebrew scriptures. Let me give you some uh, comparisons. Um, in Atrahasis, which is again Babylonian, um, uh, the story basically starts with the humans multiplying too fast and their noisiness is disturbing Enlil's sleep. So the Noah figure, that, that initiates the whole uh, flood. Whereas in the Noah story, God is grieved at humanity's corrupt rejection of him and he decides to put an end to that evil. In Gilgamesh, which is an older Mesopotamian um, story, uh, the flood is so terrible that even the gods cowered like dogs at what they had created. Uh, Whereas, of course, uh, in the Noah story, God always remains in total control of the situation. Um, In Gilgamesh, again, at the end of the flood, the gods are starving because the gods rely on sacrifices to eat. And there's been nobody to do any sacrificing, so they're starving. And when Utnapishtim, the the Noah figure, um, uh, sacrifices, it says that the gods crowded like flies around the sacrificer. Uh, Whereas, of course, in the Noah story, when Noah sacrifices, God enters into covenant with him, into this promised relationship. And some of it is all wrapped up in the in the key moment. There's there's a chiasm. Uh, we're really going deep here today. Chiasm is a is a typical structure within Hebrew literature uh, where things have sort of concentric circles working towards a middle point, and you can see the the, the you know with the flood going up and going down the the mount. You can imagine the chiasm of of ideas that you have in the Noah story. The central line of the Noah story uh, is 
in the midst of the flood when you can imagine Noah and his family praying that the waves would not split open the gopher wood. And it simply says this, and God remembered Noah. That sense that even in the darkest moment of the story, God, not in the sense of had forgotten, but God is fully present to what is going on in Noah's life. He remains the constant initiator of the story. So compared with these other, uh, other stories, what we realize is that Yahweh, the God of, uh, uh, that we meet in the Old Testament, is unique in his power, his care, his love, his justice. There is no one that can come anywhere near his power. And he just, it, it's just there. He doesn't fight, exert himself. He just is supremely mm. powerful compared to the cavalier, selfish, petulant, uh, needy gods of the other stories in the surrounding cultures of the ancient Near East. So anyway, that's a little sermon on the flood. <laughs> Exodus, we've been there already. Um, but as I've said, the Exodus story is the story to which the Psalms look back as the moment of God's big defeat. You know, this is, this is for, for the Old Testament, this is Christmas and Easter and everything else rolled into one. There's, there's barely a passage in the Old Testament that hasn't got Exodus, uh, the Exodus story as something of a backdrop. Um, and of course, as I've said, it's a lot of the Psalms have this bemusement that the God who showed himself so powerful seems to be so inactive today. I can't remember which Psalm it is that has this wonderful line that basically says, God, take your hands out of your pockets. Um, that's how we experience it often. There's lots of uh, Psalms that we could look at. Um, uh, I want to read you a little bit of Psalm 18. Uh, which I think picks up again on the idea of God's defeat of evil. Um, and, it, and it evokes very strongly uh, the ancient East, Near Eastern mythology. So that Marduk story that you heard, in fact, more strongly it, it evokes Baal uh, um, stories, but it, uh, it's, the, it's the story of God coming on the storm as the storm God above all storm gods, uh, to rescue his people, not to uh, not to um, not to become king because he's already king, not to defeat something for his own sake, but out of love for his people. Here we go. I'm going to read quite a lot of this. Uh, it says this: Psalm 18. The cords of death entangled me; the torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I cried to my God for help. The earth trembled and quaked. The foundations of the mountains shook. They trembled because he was angry. Smoke rose from his nostrils. Consuming fire came from his mouth. Burning coals blazed out of it. He parted the heavens and came down. Dark clouds were under his feet. He mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him. The dark rain clouds of the sky. Out of the brightness of his presence, clouds advanced with hailstones and bolts of lightning. The Lord thundered from heaven. 
the voice of the Most High resounded. He shot his arrows and scattered the enemy. With great bolts of lightning, he routed them. The valleys of the sea were exposed. The foundations of the earth laid bare. At your rebuke, Lord, at the blast of breath from your nostrils, he reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. I, I don't know how much basis I have in this, but, but I think that when, uh, when we see Jesus reaching down and pulling Peter out of the water, I think that this is the, this is the psalm. Uh, which uh, is also duplicated in, in uh, 1 Samuel in the book of, of in, in the story of David. I think this psalm is in the background. Uh, it, it is a story in which Jesus, who is walking on the water, he was shown himself to again have power over the created world, to have power over the forces of evil, to have power over the sea itself, reaches down into the water and draws Peter out of it. Jesus is King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Storm of Storms. And of course, we see uh, a similar thing happening in the calming of the storm. And of course, uh, in Revelation, we've already talked about, you know, Revelation really is the story of the defeat of the beast and, and the defeat of the watery chaos, uh, which is finally by the end of the book banished and of course all of this centers on the cross now the cross is not a very watery moment in some ways so that the imagery isn't very rich within the moment of the cross but obviously the cross is the central moment of the story of God's victory um, and, and of course it is part of our model of baptism isn't it so there's a sort of watery hint there in our understanding of the cross. Um, I'd, also, I'd also point out that I know, you know, as Matthew tells it, uh, there's the, all that talk about darkness and an earthquake, uh, which, you know, for me evokes that sense of, of the, the world just crumbling into the sea uh, of Psalm 46. The waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. Uh, and of course, uh, the death of Jesus is understood as the sign of Jonah, again, part of which is all, all maps with the sort of baptism idea. Uh, what we see on the cross is this moment of the final defeat of the powers of evil. Um, and Jesus, uh, in defeating the powers of evil, becomes king of the pantheon. He is uh, king over everything. Uh, through his defeat of uh, sin and death. That's the future that we have to look forward to. Whatever we experience today, that is the future that those who belong to Jesus uh, have to look forward to. That is the shalom. That's the trajectory we are on, even if that is not how life feels today. I'm going to talk just for a couple of minutes about uh, how this imagery uh, helps us uh, with wisdom for living. Um, 
Firstly, I think it gives us wisdom as to how to handle stress and anxiety and so on, how to, how to handle it in the midst. Um, and, and the key idea that, it, that, that the Bible keeps presenting with us, that us with, is the idea of stillness. Be still. Um, as the people of Israel are fleeing the Egyptians, they get trapped between the watery chaos of the Red Sea in front of them and the water-like chaos of the army behind them, slowly hemming them in. Uh, and, and Moses tells the people this. He says, Yahweh will fight for us. You need only be still. And of course, there's that famous line again in Psalm 46, as, as the writer imagines the, the mountains crashing into the sea and the waters foaming uh, and so on. Uh, he says this, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And of course, arguably the most famous be still, the be still of Jesus standing over the water, the watery chaos and saying, be still. And I don't know about you, but when I read that story, I think he starts looking at the water. But he turns and he glares at the disciples. Be still. Be still. There is a sense of. You know, and it's why are you doubting? It's all tied up in the command to be still. Um, there's that sense that as we are surrounded by the swirling chaos of the floodwaters, what is what we fix our eyes on is what will get inside of us, and what is inside of us is what will overflow into the lives of those around us. Um, if you, like Peter, fix your eyes on the waves, you'll sink. If you fix your eyes on Jesus, you won't. Um, now, I should be clear that, that, that stillness here is not apathy. The, the danger with a lot of these uh, mental health issues is deferment. We, we look outside of ourselves for things that will fix things that actually we need to address in and of ourselves. That's called deferment. Um, but actually, in all of those moments of stillness, there's physical activity. It's, it's the, the stillness of the people standing on the, on the side of the, sh of the shore, crossing through, of, through the Red Sea. The, the, the disciples in their stillness were still to row the boat. It's not about apathy. It's about fixing your eyes on the place of stillness and the source of the stillness and allowing the stillness to be uh, in your heart. So that's just a, a, a thought about um, uh, handling uh, the, the direction one might reflect in the midst of these struggles. Um, but I think the Bible has an awful lot to say also about how we, uh, how we create habits in our lives that resist the watery chaos in the first place. And I think the key uh, key idea idea here is solidity and maturity. Um, obviously, the, the lots of psalms talk about God as a, as a, as a rock that we can stand on. Um, that's a really important idea. Um, but actually, as we've talked about, that you know, the wise man built his house upon. 
what Jesus tells us is that we can be a rock. We can be solid as a rock if we hear his words and we put them into practice. Again, that uh, Ephesians 4 uh, reference. In Ephesians, uh, Paul uh, talks a lot about unity and he uses two main images for that. One is the body, the human body, and one is the temple. Um, and uh, and he, he mixes the two up. He describes the mature body, in effect, as a bit like a temple, as solid and rooted as a temple. Uh, he calls the people to be corporately mature in their faith. And if they are, we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching. Psalm uh, one would be another one here. Blessed uh, is the one who delights in the law of the Lord, who meditates on his law day and night. That person will be like a tree planted by streams of water. I think the encouragement is that when life is going well, we invest in our relationship with God. We invest in keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, uh, fixed on the shalom that he is welcoming us into. We develop habits that, 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 that enable us to stay solid and still. And that will enable us to withstand the flood when it comes. And I think there's also uh, an aspect here of how this stuff that we're talking about actually taps into the very meaning of what it is to be human. Um, I think that the Bible gives us wisdom about how we participate in God's defeating of the watery chaos once and for all. And for this, I want to take us right back to Genesis 1. Um, we've talked about how chaos is death uh, in um, all across the ancient Near East. That's, that's, that's almost by definition. If you want life, you've got to create structure and form into which the life can fit. Did you know that, that pyramids uh, are, are originally evoked the first solid form coming up out of the waters in, in Egyptian mythology? Um, what we have in Genesis 1 is three days of stilling and creating form in the world, separating out. And then you have a blank canvas that you can fill with life. And of course, the invitation, uh, having, uh, having subdued and filled the world, uh, to the invitation to us in Genesis 2 is to continue that act, to fill and subdue the world. Again, subdue not uh, not as often we experience it uh, today. We hear that word, those words quite darkly. But this is continue to fight off the propensity of this world to sink into chaos. Because, of course, as uh, one or two folk have already alluded, water isn't just death. Water is also life. Ordered water, arguably, is life. Um, and there's another whole set of imagery in the scriptures around that um, and it generally centers on rivers uh, on that uh, on, on on again so stillness isn't stagnancy it is ordered uh, flow psalm 23 of course he leads me beside quiet waters psalm 1 we've already talked about that tree that is healthy because it is by streams of water 
and back again to Psalm uh, 46, um, when we're invited into the stillness of recognizing the exalted God, it reminds us that there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. The river is, is, a, is the central part of the world into which we are being invited as followers of Jesus. And again, uh, we've talked about in Revelation that there's no seas uh, uh, in the, at the end of Revelation, but there is again a river flowing through the city. The essence of the human mandate, arguably, is to join God in defeating chaos, in ordering the chaos and making it a place that is life-giving. That's deep in our DNA. Um, and I suspect that many of your vocations uh, will reflect that in one way or another. You might have to dig quite deep to see it. Certainly when I think of my accountant, there's a man who can bring order out of chaos. Um, anybody who works with numbers does it. Um, you know, if you if you work with wood, creating furniture, you're bringing order in some ways out of chaos. If you if you take a, a, a flower bed that is that is uh, that is just overgrown and you order it, you're bringing order out of chaos. You're enabling it to be a place where life flourishes. When you do a jigsaw puzzle, I know that when my life feels least creative, some of the, one of my go to things is to create order out of chaos with a jigsaw puzzle it is deeply rooted in who we are. Um, and I would invite you to think about um, all three of these things. Uh, what, what are the aspects of my life that feel chaotic and where I am thrashing around, whereas actually what I need to do is fix my eyes on God and find his stillness. What are the ways I need to be invested in my own spiritual maturity and that in the habits of my relationship with God that will enable me to withstand the, the flood? And what are the ways in which my life reflect that as the primary, uh, the core of my createdness uh, to expel the watery chaos, to expel the chaos of this world, bring order, bring, bring the shalom uh, of God's new world? Jesus, storm of storms, we thank you uh, for your victory. Uh, uh, we thank you that you have defeated the powers of evil. We pray that you would enable us to fix our eyes on you, that we would hear your command to be still, um, um, that you would give us the hope of the river in the city of God, uh, and that you would make us wise as, uh, as we battle uh, with uh, the chaos of this world. Amen. Okay. Um, can I invite questions? But can I just start yep. by saying uh, I really appreciated the, the whole layout, especially the juxtaposition between the... Uh, the cosmo the cosmologies the ancient cosmologies of babylonian egyptian assyrian and you see that the gods had a very different relationship to the chaos 
mm-hmm. that they felt vulnerable mm-hmm. uh, and equal to. That it was really a very dualistic type of reality. That chaos had just as much power as they did. Yeah. And in fact, the gods were a part of the chaos. Mm. Uh, and you and you think of even Jordan Peterson plays on this this play of order and chaos as a part of life, but he doesn't get above it. Um, and so the ancient cosmologies or Peterson or others don't get above the waters. Mm-hmm. They're they're struggling with, but it was lovely to see how you were showing throughout scripture that they recognize that there's this chaos, there's not a sentimentality, mm-hmm. and yet God is able to walk on the waters. Mm-hmm. He broods over the waters. Mm-hmm. He defeats the dragon. Mm-hmm. And so we have a God that is unlike the ancient cosmologies. Yeah. Uh, a personal God who has overcome the watery chaos. Mm-hmm. And that's someone that we can look to. So I really appreciate yeah. that juxtaposition. Thank you. Yeah. Great. This. I think a follow-up comment from that too. I was just sort of wondering how how there's something that we also sort of enjoy about the chaos, like the ocean, for example. I mean, I probably think it's an island, but it, it seems to me like the there's sort of like a, a fear, but it's also kind of like an invigorating fear, like you were talking about swimming in, in the ocean or surfing or whatever. Like we seem to like things where nature is like a little bit scary, but we have some <laughs> sense of mastery, but there's always kind of an edge. Some people like it more than others. Yeah, but I wonder if some of that reflects our relationship with God, or could maybe I'm reading too much into it. But that we like that sense of mystery and something that's not containable and is beyond us. Um, uh huh. But then there's also, yeah, I don't know. It's just a thought that was occurring to me. Yes. Aligned for something that's like greater than us, that in the way that maybe we encounter some of that natural stuff. Yes. But it's not. It, it's obviously not personal in the same way. So I don't know. Well, no, I think that's very interesting. So uh, we enjoy we enjoy chaos a little bit. Yeah. When it's when it's um, in when it's contained, actually, ironically, it's yeah, we, right. um, and uh, and I I think that's I think that's right. I think I think um, uh, partly there are so many ways you can you can take this. You can you can you, I mean, obviously, art happens on the boundaries between order and chaos. Yeah. Um, there's a whole bunch of study you can do there about what it, you know, because you, and all, you know, the ordered world, um, oh gosh, there's so much that we, that we could ex- explore in that stuff. But I think, I think also it, it, it evokes the fact that we enjoy the dynamic. So we, we don't want stillness in the sense of stagnancy. We, we want, we want a sense of the dynamic um, and, uh, that you know, you can then get into sort of the Greek conceptions of of uh, of what lies ahead of us and and the sort of e- the, the perfection of Eden rather than the dynamic goodness of Eden. If something is perfect, it can't change, or else it'll no longer be perfect. Uh, but if it's good, it can be dynamically good, which is uh, so. So I think that partly reflects the fact that we want dynamic stillness rather than perfect stillness if you said i mean i don't know but it's like, like a link to mystery as well like, the link to know, mystery yep like i was i was swimming like every day like in the summer and there's like i wasn't very worried about the ground because it's really small <laughs> like but just not knowing what's under the water is kind of creepy but also kind of 
Well, at the same time, like the sense of what there's like a, a, just a little bit like larger than us. So yes, for that, if you need something more frightening, that yes, yeah, that was, yeah. I think that's great. You know, it's the experience of 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 swimming in the sea or in lakes as a, as as an engagement with something beyond us or something inherently mysterious um no i think that's very helpful any other uh thoughts and questions in the room randy, randy um I invite you to unmute yourself thanks uh that was that was excellent jess i i really appreciated uh just the, the scholarship um the confession as well i think that it was good i both of us are, are pastors and, and I, I think about how we are trying to create environments within our community that can hold people um, in the storm. And I know you have impeccable liturgical sensibilities, uh, being a good Anglican. And, and so I'm, I'm just wondering. Sorry, carry on. <laughs> I'm just wondering if, if, if you have thoughts about the material that you've presented to us tonight. And, and how we could do better, you know, I, I mean, there, there's a big conversation about how we could be doing better as pastors in dealing with people within the chaos and the storms and, 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 and how we can navigate. Like, this is very helpful pastorally when I'm thinking about um, walking with people. But what I'm wondering is, 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 do you have any thoughts about our liturgical um, ways, like the way that we conduct community worship that can help people? When, when they're in the midst of, of chaos, in the midst of storms. Um, do you have thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think creating space for messiness, uh, you know, is, is a huge part of it. And I think we were reflecting earlier uh, over dinner about how liturgy, sometimes I suppose in, our, in this language, uh, liturgy can feel like uh, creating the order that we need <laughs> um, in the midst of the chaos. But I think it can very often um, feel uh, more like the order of a, of a potato masher. <laughs> you know, just, you know, it, it, it's just too strong and too, it bulldozes through our, our, the, the messiness of our life. And I think there's a very fine balance with, with liturgy in that, in that regard. Um, but I and I I've been reflecting again on Liz was talking about the, the how this has got her thinking in terms of mystery and uh, and, and so on. I think um, th there's a there's a sense in which um, we yeah we make we need to make space for that kind of thing. And I think sometimes liturgy because it's a it's a window onto a larger thing can 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 function in that way. But but I and I but I do think that this is musical, because obviously, um, arguably, music is is order chaos, order chaos, order chaos, or what you'd call it musically is tension resolution, tension resolution, tension resolution. And I would say that um, the majority of worship music today is order chaos, order chaos, order chaos. It's that which so so just the very. The very nature of the harmonic world of the music um, leaves us unable to deal with unresolved tension. Um, so actually making sure that our music has the unresolved, uh, has a sense of tension within it, 
is part of our spirits experiencing the church as a place where tension and and the storms of life are okay um, and I think you know obviously the breadth of the psalms gives us all of that language you can't you can't sing uh, I sink beneath the, the you know the, the the miry waves to to you know one five one five one five one I would argue Jeremy Begbie would be proud he would, wouldn't he? Yes. <laughs> well done. I'm, well I'm, done. I'm, I'm not, by the way, but in saying that, I'm not arguing for a particular. Well, I suppose I probably am. I am being cautious about soft rock as a genre, <laughs> uh, but there are plenty of other genres that are equally problematic. I think I'm, I'm not saying that this lands us necessarily in a particular place. Julian, and Julian. Um, Julian and in relation to this, like when we were in Vancouver, we went to a church that was very good at lament. Um, they, they weren't always staying in lament, but there was space for lament, and that was like whether it was, you know, miscarriages or like there was, there was space, they would create space for lament, but also even the tension of Good Friday and Easter Sunday, like um, they brought a lot of art into it, and there was visual things, but I still remember this Good Friday service where every, you know, it sort of everything sort of ends in darkness and you're hanging there. And this Australian girl, I think her face was painted black, but she was screaming and stomping and screaming and, and then it was just kind of black. And it was so powerful that it was just left there. And then you came into Easter Sunday and it was just, the rejoicing was like so high. Hmm. And, and I think, because there was that sort of you know space, but they were also good at sort of bringing some of that through the year. But I don't feel like we have. Yes. No, I think, and I think that's great. So it's it's so I suppose the liturgical calendar does invite us to moments of living in the tension, doesn't it? Um, and maybe we need to be better at it. But and of course the invitation is to is to weep with those who weep you know and um sociologically that's a struggle isn't it because a room full of people rejoicing doesn't feel quite as hard to manage as a room full of people weeping i mean i i yeah it's it's i think it's a real challenge to work out what it looks like in church to engage well with that but not not invite it in a way that ends up wallowing uh but but gives it space uh, to to be people's lived experience i think that's i think that is a real challenge daniel and then josh daniel and then josh um not to press you too much on this like i guess the the broad question would be what's what's your problem with soft rock <laughs> but, uh, but if I was to condense that down, like uh, just to, to get a little bit more pointed um, and just have your thoughts on this um, is uh, like, you know, you take uh, a lot of modern worship songs now have have progressed into my starting on minor chords. Um, so is it um, is it the structure, the chord progression, or is it the the lyrics and the two perfect nature of it? What's the What's the, uh, what are some of your issues, if you don't mind me asking, like, I'm not saying that I'm a fan of anything in particular, but I'm just mm -hmm. curious more if you, can you dig into that a little bit more? 
Well, let me try. I mean, obviously, it's I've I've opened up a little bit of a can. There. <laughs> yeah. You can cl- yeah. we can close it if you want. Or no, you no, no. I think. Yeah. Well, I. Um, I think I would. I, okay, I think lyrically, yeah. I think we have lost the breadth of the emotional content of the songs. That was a hymn book, mm. and that was compiled as if to say, this is this is the sort of full range of experiences that we need to reflect on corporately. Mm. And about you know a, a third, depending on how you judge them, a third to a half of those are dark, lamenting psalms, and that is n- in no way reflected on. I will sing to you, my king. Or oh, I'm sorry, but you know there are certain cliches that get, get rolled out a lot to, to me at the moment. But at the, at the same time, that doesn't again. Um, I mean, worship music is is like a logo to to art insofar as it's it's worship music that is being used as a tool it has to be that's part of its nature so i'm not suggesting uh that you're, you're not you, you that gosh how to how to how to reel this in a little bit it's good I, i'm following you if you're going you're really but i i so i think i think that um we need worship music that has the sense of structure that enables a corporate expression, mm-hmm. uh, but it needs to be broader uh, than what it is. But I understand how uh, it would be hard to, you know, sing your wrath lies heavily upon me, I sink beneath your waves mm-hmm. within some musical styles. And indeed in a church environment, it would feel odd. So I'm not sure what the answer is. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that there are some styles of music that deal with those, the tension um, and the discord of life uh, in a way that, that um, and I, I mean, I've been a soft rock worship leader, so I'm not, I'm, I'm not actually throwing it all out. Um, um, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a fan of the hymn sandwich, which is obviously the other end of, of the extreme, but there's something else. I mean, I think that the, the, um, the emotional content that, for example, that you get in the spirituals um, and, and in a lot of gospel music, mm. um, you have you have the both and mm-hmm. there. But yeah. I don't know. It's, I mean, that's it's a huge. That's another whole. There we go. That's my next talk. <laughs> if you have me back. Excellent. That was good. Mm-hmm. Uh, Josh. Josh. I can't well, see. Um, hi. Oh, hi, Josh. Hi. How are you doing? I, I promise you that my question won't be nearly as. Uh, difficult or controversial as the utility of soft rock. Um, <laughs> the, uh, it's, it's somewhat, it's related, but tangential to your talk. And it's just been a mild curiosity of mine. So I just thought I'd throw it out there, which is um, Nietzsche pointed out that. Uh, Go on. Say that, hmm? Help. Yeah. Go on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. N- N- Nietzsche, Nietzsche pointed out that um, it was interesting that um, for the Viking culture, Valhalla were the cool halls or the warm halls of Valhalla. And for um, uh, the, the Buddhist culture in sort of India, that it was uh, the cool breeze of Nirvana, that there was, some, there was sort of a, a culturally contingent um, element there in their imagery. I've often sort of wondered to what degree is 
the, the watery chaos of the Hebrew imagination culturally contingent in that way as they were a desert people who would have great anxiety towards the water and how much is that really a universal human anxiety towards the water I don't know that's I don't know how I how I think about that so I just thought I'd pose the question yeah that's brilliant did people hear that yeah so um so I mean what I'd say is obviously because most of the tribes of Israel couldn't swim. Uh, there's that definitely adds a certain potency to the fear around water, um, and uh, I suspect that. Well, there I think the, the tribe of Dan I think uh, was a seafaring people or something like that. One of them might have been, but certainly the Hittites, um, with their close neighbours, were, and so some of this stuff might have got into the shared imagination through through the seafaring nations around them. But I suspect that a big part of it uh, um, came from the experience of spring floods. So a, flood, a, a, a river even like the Jordan would be this very peaceful little thing uh, most of the year. And then in spring, it would flood the most enormous floodplain and it would be a perilous season. Um, and these floods could have been extremely serious sometimes, but of course, as the waters recede, um, what you what you leave is incredibly rich, fertile soil. Uh, you you have in some ways baptism. You have this death and the new life that uh, is is left behind it. And, and I I suspect that that was a huge part of the imagination um, where that where that came from in 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 folk in the Middle East. And that would my understanding is that that would be the case of a lot of the big rivers uh, of the rest of the region uh, uh, as well. Um, so people watching their farmland disappear, um, and, and so on. Um, so yeah, I, I think, I, I think it is broader, but it, it definitely, it brings it home. I mean, it's so much richer for them than it is for us because most of us can swim and most of us are not, uh, don't live in daily fear of this spring being the, the one that removes our farm. But, you know, I, I would I would say that, I mean, you gave examples of all the ancient cosmologies all had a fear and respect for the watery chaos. Uh, it's, yes, there are blessings that we see of water throughout different cultures, and people see that, yes, we if we don't have water, you don't have life. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, you hope that it's a part of Valhalla. You hope that's a part of Nirvana. You expect it to be, just as the Bible talks about the rivers, flowing in the new Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. So yep. it's it's not as if they thought water bad, land good, because we're nomadic people, but that they saw the da inherent dangers of water. And people mm -hmm. don't survive very long in the ocean around here if they don't fear the water. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there's, there's, there's a joy uh, over our technological mastery of the boats and yep. Uh, life vests and so on, mm -hmm. but you still have to you know, teach people to fear the water. Yeah, and and anyone who looks deeply into the water, I, I would suggest it's a bit fearsome or fearful. Yeah, uh, or if we go on planet Earth from the safety of our couches, eating our Lay's potato chips, <laughs> and looking at these sea creatures at the bottom, it still kind of gives you like an eerie feeling. Yeah, 
so so I would I think that it is a transcultural. I think I think I would agree, and I'd also I mean, the 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 pre prevalence of flood narratives. Yeah. I mean, we we're, we're meeting on Wasanich territory, aren't we? And the word Wasanich means emerging people. It's it's it actually reflects their flood narrative in which uh, the wrath of God brought a flood in this area and they landed on um, on Mount Dean, didn't they? Yeah. Um, you know, so the land we stand on now is named after, the, you know, the mythological fear of flood. Um, and of course, you know, there's these stories appear everywhere. And of course, the question is, is that somehow an ancient memory of the Noah story, or is it, uh, is it stuff that that hangs over from the end of the last ice age, um, and the massive rise in sea levels, and lots and lots of people would have had that experience of, of, uh, of, of floods. So I think it is deep in the psyche. Yes, Greg. Yeah, I was going to say, isn't there a bit of a dichotomy between waters and sea? Because it seems to me within the scriptures. The sea is where the monsters come from, but the water, like the waters of the Jordan, the baptism and everything like that, that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. You know, and then in Revelation, we see the waters will cover the sea. So it's almost like sea is almost um, synonymous with the idea of Hades. Mm. You know, I, I, I see, yep. to, to me, I see a connection of how the, uh, you know, early Jews saw the sea as being, you know, you descend yeah. into the sea, yes. you know, when you go up in the mountains, meet, meet God, you know, yes. up in a cloud or, you know, whatever. Yeah. And uh, so it seems to me that there's a, there's a bit, bit of a dichotomy and we should see a difference between when we talk about water and when we talk about the sea. I, I would say that the, that the dichotomy is between ordered and disordered water. So mm. I don't think that there is a distinction between sea and other water per se. And as I said, I think because of the flood waters um, uh, of, of, the, of the spring floods. So we see waters, uh, we see rivers overflowing in a bad way. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we don't see the monsters coming out of the rivers. The no, but I, out of the sea. but I, I think, I think that that's to be too ordered or too orderly in the way the imagination works i think the associations uh, of the of these uh floodwaters would have been in terms of the domains of the gods this is the thing is you think in terms of the domains of the gods we we think a little bit too physically about there being an actual dragon in the water whereas for them it's it's not quite as simple as that there's Ooh. there's something slightly more complex going on in the imagination and um so I think, and in terms of the waters covering the sea, it's it's that the that the earth will be filled with the with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. So it's that it's not that the waters will cover the sea. It's easy, mm. they're using that as an example, uh, as an illustration. Yeah. Um, uh, it seems to me in that sense, so you know, even as you know, they're making a distinction between water and sea. I think yes. I I don't think that's what's going on. I think what they're what they're I think you'd, you'd have to look at that in terms of how they'd understand the cosmology of what is water and what is sea. But I'd, it's not making a distinction between the sea and other water in that sense, I'm fairly sure. Um, I, I think it's talking about it's the universalness of it, I think. 
but but it would be a good passage to to dig into. Yeah, thank you, Greg. This. Um, I have two, two other thoughts. One is just the quick one that I've been reading Dante, and it's interesting. Dante, how, help. Uh, it's <laughs> not in the original. Um, but it's interesting to see how, how water shows up in, in Greek mythology too as a crossing of this, this kind of like consumed land. There's like two big moments of crossing water going to the hotels. And so I, I went there. Yeah, that's just a reflection of some of what you talked about is sort of a border, almost a border for this transition. Um, and then the other thing I was thinking yeah. about, I mean, we'll see how you talk from this, but just how would you think about the things that you shared tonight in, in reference to deconstruction, faith deconstruction? Um, so I don't know if you can see any parallels there and, and maybe like, yeah, I know that sort of chaos and order kind of stuff, because we were talking at lunch the other day about uh, can deconstruction be helpful and in what way? And that is kind of a movement out of order into chaos. Mm -hmm. uh, but then, then you know, hopefully people can come back to this place of stillness. So do you have any thoughts about yeah. how that might map onto these? Yeah, wonderful. Thank you. Did folk hear those two points? No, so the first was, was uh, engaging with Dante's use of crossing through water um, and reflecting on, on that's something similar going on there. And the second question was in terms of deconstructing our own faith uh, how you know? Uh, how does this material help us with that? Is that a fair summary? Yeah. So I think with that second one, um, I would say deconstructing your faith is terrifying, um, and um, and that's my my experience of of realizing in my early twenties, having been I was already preaching in churches and I I was doing everything I could to be the shining light of my tribe and i finished university and realized i didn't have the faintest whiff of faith that god was going to care for me uh now that dad wasn't paying my bills <laughs> and i was trying to get into the music business in london and i i realized i had never allowed myself to ask any serious questions and i think that was my first experience of the of the, the 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 ground on which we stand being taken away from underneath me, and I sank. It was terrifying, and I had about a year and a half of of dealing with that. And of course, the fact is that it's exactly that language of there is no foothold. Um, it's. Uh, um, but you have to go through it if if you like me. Um, come from a, a Christian uh, subculture that that where real searching isn't invited, where it's just a bit too easy to answer all the questions rightly and say everything with the right vocabulary and the right tone of voice, and um, and thereby play the part. At some point, it's going to come crumbling down. So the the sooner you're willing to engage with deconstructing that stuff <laughs> the less it'll feel like sinking into the miry depths um but if that is your experience let me be your friend and um, find other friends as well just to be around you because that's that is really tough stuff my experience is and, and of course the problem is as you reconstruct you're never quite sure whether you're reconstructing from first principles whether you're reconstructing truly or whether you're reconstructing because you're 
desperate to find something to stand on. Um, and we don't know ourselves well enough sometimes to know. So it gives us all a great, a little bit of humility with everything that we've reconstructed. So I think it, I don't know, I, that might, might sound a little harrowing, but that, that would be my thoughts on this. I wonder too, if, you know, as you, like, as you learn to sail or surf or whatever, like, there might be moments where you're terrified, like, you know, you know, you know that you've gone through a storm before. So if you may go back, like, at least this is how I experience it, but there's, there's other times where I felt like I'm going through, like, another kind of deconstruction or, like, seeking my doubt or whatever, but, but knowing that I've gone through it before and, yeah. Yeah. Yes. So previous experience. Um, and maybe did you hear that? No. So pre, I think previous that sense that previous experience of going through the floodwaters it makes it easier to to in, in the midst of it again. And I'd I'd agree. I would say that. There have been a number of factors that have made the last few weeks for me extremely stressful. And I think the reason I haven't sunk <laughs> is because I, it's partly, and I'm not trying to under-spiritualize things, but I've kind of been here before. I know I, I um, and, and I've been choosing the rock. I've been really conscious of not staring at the waves as Peter did, really conscious of holding out my hand to Jesus and saying, lift me up. Um, and it's been massively enriching to my prayer life. Uh, uh, but I think that it's, it is that way because I've, I've done it. I've done it the other way before. Yeah. Josh. Um, I, I hope it's not particularly out of line, but the, that passage in Dante is one of the few that I, that has stood out to me in the past. I, I read the Inferno a couple of years ago. So I would, um, the thing that stood out to me in that particular passage was when they're crossing the moat and Dante he, he sees on the surface of the waves, there's a, there's, a, there's a surface reality that's going on. And all of the, uh, um, it, it's, it's sort of the anger, hatred um, section of, of hell. And they're all, they're all, you can see there's a lot of fighting going on right there on the surface. And, um, and Dante turns to Virgil and asks, well, is, 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 this, is this fighting, is this what's causing the, the, the tumult, the tumult in the waves? Is this why the, the waves are, are as rocky as we are, this visible fighting that we see? And Virgil says, no, 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 it's way deeper than that. He says, it's, it's the sullen. Um, so it, it's, 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 it's those who, uh, who have, who, not the guys that you see, but it's what you don't see that, that, that for, in which the, the waves are, are being generated from. It's, it's, the, it's the tumult that's, that's, that's much more sort of in the, in the soul, not just of the, perhaps in the individual, but I, I, I read it much more in the culture. Because I, I, when I read it, it was very much in the context of the um, sort of 2016 American election when no one knew where this came from. And it was like, no, 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 this has been building. There's, there's, a, there's a something under the waves. There's an emotional anxiety that, that hasn't been seen in which, in which it, it, it's, it's coming up from. 
Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I oh. I just happened to know that. So I just thought it very helpful. Thank you, Josh. Yeah. Thomas. Hello. Uh, Josh, great job. It's always interesting to listen to you every time I come on here. Great stuff. And wow. And I came in a few minutes late because I had another meeting prior to this. I'm a high school band director in, in, in lot near Los Angeles, not San Francisco, like the backdrop. And uh, so I came in a little bit on the music thing and, and the soft rock thing. The first thing I thought as this came up was uh, I spent a lot of time when we go to church listening to what the chord progressions are and this and that, what they're putting to it. And it seems like there's a formula all the time. And we visited a lot of churches during COVID, either online or the ones that were open. And there seems to be this formula where it's like, we're going to put everything to a formula of Coldplay and U2 and it, across every church you go to and 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 fit in this stuff and it, it's kind of like pep songs before uh the pastor takes the stage uh and sometimes it's very good but it's kind of like always the same the drum beat is always like you know right out of uh whatever his name is there the place for you too i've forgotten it um and or a mix of Coldplay, and and all the progressions are the same and it's it's interesting that you brought that up which has nothing to do with about what i was going to say is that i heard that first so what I've learned from you tonight, a couple of things. One, if I think I have this right, first off, I teach an art history class every summer. And we always start with uh, a Mesopotamia. And in it, we always compare Gilgamesh to, to, to the flood story. And we always talk about, uh, you know, the noise that the humans are making. And so there's a flood for this. And, you know, the reasons for the flood, sin versus these other reasons, or uh, and and the uh, how the ark is designed and this and that and I don't I don't talk about my thoughts on it I just present the information let the kids grapple with it but I have never uh, as you talked about tonight n- noticed that the immense power of the Hebrew God versus the power of the Babel I've never thought about that and so my first thought was wow thank you for that because that's something I'm gonna secretly bring into class and let them examine that that's trademarked by the way just so you know no (laughs) yes and the second thing i think takes from that is that kind of i think what you know this has been a trying time and and uh, my wife and i are building a house i mean we all have our stories of difficulties and i realize you said that uh, if there's mental health issues and that kind of thing you're not trying to take the place of that and and there's a that that's not what this is but for basic living as a christian um it sounds like what i've learned from what you've said is we focus too much on the water and not on the being still and and trusting in that immense power that we have in christ uh and we overlook it because we focus on the water and and uh, I've seen that very much in my own life, and that's something we 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 grapple with. And and uh, I I'm I'm getting that as the moral of the story here, if that's my, the case. And mm. I leave the you. I think I think I would I would say that on a personal level, that is normally the case. On a corporate level, the opposite is probably true. Okay. So I think we uh, we you. You could almost define anxiety and depression 
in terms of fixing your eyes on the water. Okay. Anxiety would be where you thrash, uh, thrash aimlessly within it, depression, mm -hmm. and you give up and let it flood over you. Ah, yes. Uh, and mm -hmm. uh, so you could argue that that yes, so that is that's definitely true. That the invitation here is to look somewhere else, and that's and that's where we fix our eyes. And that and again, psychologists would say that in a second. You know, uh, that that the things that we dwell on um, shape our hearts. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I don't want to I don't want to turn uh, the gospel writers into psychologists when they're dealing with Peter and in, in the waves. But but there's a strong resonance in terms of that particular story. But that is the invitation to if we live our lives with God as king. And and that is ultimately where our eyes always rest. Even if we look around, you know, we're not ignoring a la 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 if our eyes rest on the sovereignty of God in the midst of it all, then I think that will do our mental health a lot of good. But actually in the corporate context, we've got, we're, we're too good at, at, at that bit and not about, not at allowing our eyes to see more, broad, more broadly what, it, what, what are the contexts that we bring before God, the, the, the struggles that we bring mm -hmm. and the mental health challenges that we bring. We need to give people permission to feel, I think. Uh, absolutely, I, I've got that, absolutely, thank you. Okay. I'm going to read a line from uh, Melanie. Have compassion for those who can't be still. Staying still when you're actually in water leads to sinking and death. So I think the flailing is intuitive and understandable, particularly if God seems absent, even if it's not ultimately helpful. And neurochemistry can cloud our vision when it comes to clinical anxiety and depression. Yes. And again, I th so one, one thing I'd say here is that I think that stillness isn't the same as stagnancy. So stillness, and this is, so um, <clears throat> we need to be very careful because this is one of the main dangers with this material is that it, it leads us to say, um, the answer to my problems is to sit here and wait for God to, to, to step in. Um, and that's definitely not uh, where we want to end up. Um, so I think um, I think it's uh, uh, it's right that we uh, take action, um, um, but I think that the it's a, it's a both hand in that regard. Um, uh, any other? This just a follow up on Thomas's comment today, or what you were saying about the corporate versus the individual. Focus. Yep. And what I'm wondering is that if we lack that corporate focus on looking at the waves and the reality of the waves and the chaos, I wonder if that leads people to experience it alone and experience that isolation more, more chaos, mm. rather than experience it in a corporate setting that can be framed as part of God's story. Brilliant. Yeah. So because because of our failure to uh, engage with this stuff well often in a church context it leaves people to flail around on their own rather than uh, having it and i think that's exactly why there are so many lament psalms uh, in the bible that you know that, that, that those who 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 put together the book of psalms said we need to have these the language for these experiences right at the, you know in the liturgical life of of god's people um and I think that's I think it's exactly what's what's going on there. Yeah.
I'm, um, what I'm kind of finding right now is that I feel like our church is losing people because we're, the church is becoming more political than reading the Bible. And I, this might not really have anything to do with what we're talking about, but it's something that's been on my heart. And I don't know if you all are experiencing that as well. So I live in Surrey, BC. Um, and yeah, as COVID broadens, I see the church changing. Um, not only like we've been talking about songs, but we've but also in the message that I'm receiving. And uh, so for me, the waters are, um, they're, yeah, they're, it's becoming more surface instead of more deep. Just an observation. I'd love, I, 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 really, I didn't quite catch uh all of that could you could you re rephrase that i think that sounds like an important thing to to say and for me to understand okay yes um so what i'm finding in church is that our church is becoming more political and i see so that that's the surface yeah we're not I, i'm not receiving the message of um christ in the bible it's it's more of how we should act and how we should um be in community, uh, which is which is fine. Like being in community is good, but instead of how, yeah, it, it's yeah, things are more political rather than Christ-centered. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So our waters are um, yeah. not moving. <laughs> no. Yeah, I would, uh, in some ways, still the, the nature of stillness is deferring to God rightly and focusing on God rightly, um, uh, rather than attempting in our own efforts to change this world. Um, and I think when the, when, the, when the conversation gets political, it, it does pull our eyes off. off yeah. Deep. Yeah, I think that's right. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the, the gospel has all sorts of political implications, but, mm -hmm. but that's not where, we, you know, that's, we need to start with Jesus. Right. Stuff first. And it's yeah. the churches get into a lot of the political political diatribes and uh, it and taking positions at times, which you know uh, Christianity is political in a sense, but it's not of this world. So we have to be mindful of that. But mm. I see a lot of people, even my children, feel more anxiety because of the discourse around the news mm. and around politics. Yeah. Uh, and so we can gather together and become more anxious rather than less yep. anxious. Mm -hmm. Local diatribe actually causes anxiety mm. after, after coming out of church. Brilliant. I, one, one of the things that I've noticed in, in the way that the watery chaos language is often used in scripture is that it often refers to people. Uh, so the experience of sinking, uh, you know, so even in Psalm 46, uh, there, there, there's a there's the sense of the nations in tumult and creation in tumult the 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 the, the sea i mean this this sort of tolkien-esque battles uh, that sense of the, the 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 armies appearing as the sea um is is one of the things that comes through and again in the extra story there's the sense of uh, i i i think that that the writer plays with the sea before them the the the, the, the actual sea and the sea of of the egyptians 
coming up behind them. And, and a lot of the Psalms, especially uh, that, you know, uh, Psalm 18 uh, that we talked about uh, is, is David being chased by Saul, um, its enemies. Again, there's so many of those Psalms are reflecting on enemies. If we're creating enemies, we're creating watery chaos. We're creating uh, the, the more and more of the evil uh, that uh, inhabits this world, actually. Uh, you know, if so, we need to be very careful of, of, a, of a political conversation that creates enemies, because actually what you're doing, exactly as Clark said, you're creating more anxiety and mm -hmm. chaos, arguably. But wasn't Jesus doing that? I mean, in a sense, too, because he was very political. And, and he was saying, yes. you know, this is going to turn parent against child and so on and so forth. Yes. And, 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 and uh, in a lot of ways, I think the world that Jesus was in, between all the disparate groups that all had their own agendas, you know, from the Herodians all the way, all the way to the Romans, for that matter. Yeah. You know, through to, to the disciples. Yes. You know, the zealots, everything. Else. There was a lot of factions and they were all at each other. You know, some were able to work together, but others not so much. Yes. You know. And totally. No, that's a very fair point, Gregory. And so we don't. It doesn't mean that we we remove all all discourse and we and we don't challenge evil in political systems mm -hmm. when we see it. Absolutely. Um, but yes. So again, it's a point of balance. Um, I don't want to have to politics completely right as myself. <laughs> but of course, one of the things that's interesting is how the disciples had such opposing political ideologies yeah. among the twelve. You know, and, so, and disparate from what Jesus was trying to teach. Yeah. Yeah, sure. It was teaching nonviolent revolution. They they never got away from it. They were sure. for some kind of violent revolution. Yeah, totally. Great. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. But it, it seems that your emphasis is on who can do the lifting out of um, the water. So like being still is allowing God to do the lifting out of the water, but aligning yourself to politics is either um, trying to lift yourself out of the water um, or through resources that are available in the world. Um, would that be the... Uh, that's a brilliant, a brilliant summary of that. I think that's a very helpful way of putting it. Did you, did you hear that, Vic? Okay, so thank you so much, Jess, for, for coming and it would be a delight. Well, it's been lovely to be here. Thank you so much.